You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional audio resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, Burr, and, <laughs> and uh, warmest wishes to you uh, sitting at home now, like Josh said. I hope you find yourself uh, warm under a blanket wherever you are. And also, uh, happy Valentine's Day. Uh, if any of you had plans, I'm hoping you're just able to get a rain check on whatever going out uh, tonight was supposed to look like. But uh, we do have the privilege today of being in God's Word. And so if you'd like to turn to Romans 8, um, we will look at the first 11 verses here in this magnificent passage. Uh, and I say it's a magnificent passage because um, there are secular historians, secular commentators, what I mean to say is people who would not call themselves Christians, who just objectively say that Paul's letter, his epistle to the church in Rome, is one of the most consequential documents, writings in human history in terms of the way that it shapes everything, really shapes a lot of Western thought. And so with that in mind, we're actually moving forward to, I would say, I mean, like, I mean all of it's wonderful, but when you get into chapter 8, into these passages, you're really talking about, I mean, this is all of it's sacred, but you are talking about the crown jewel of a full explanation of what Christianity means and how it's brought to bear into our lives. And so, um, and I think the reason why this is just why I'm, I'm so eager to preach today is that we've really been spending seven chapters in explanation, in needed explanation, uh, and we'll continue in explanation. But when we get into eight, chapter eight specifically, what Paul's actually, he's, he's moving and he's going like, okay, there, there's the summation. Okay, now here's actually what it means. And what it means, Josh has already said, um, is this staggering truth, this promise that we're actually not ever, ever, ever condemned by God because of our faith in Jesus Christ. And I, I'm telling you guys, and so let me, I'm already getting ahead of myself, okay? Um, that's usually not good. So let me just start with kind of the, the main idea, the C note, if you will, the upshot of this passage. And what it says, the main idea is that because of Jesus, we are not now, not ever condemned. Because grace has triumphed over sin, evidenced by the Holy Spirit, raising both Jesus Christ and ourselves from our own deaths, that Holy Spirit is now actively leading us towards life and peace and away from the death and decay of our former lives. And that's the idea that we're getting into uh, this morning. And so I'd love to just walk through this passage together. Again, Josh has already read it, but let's start with the first four verses. Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And for what God has done, what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And so you start with the idea of condemnation, um, which I think takes a, um, an, an, an interesting shape in this moment in time, especially in this weird 2020, 2021 life that we're in, uh, because uh, I think cancel culture, the idea of, of cancel culture, the idea of 
uh, somebody saying something and sometimes something so egregious. Um, and, and then, um, and, and this has happened, like, like you guys know this, that like across the arts, across politics, uh, thought leaders, um, I mean, really anybody, any influencer, um, uh, and, and we've seen so many fall, again, fall for saying sometimes very egregious things. Uh, there is a move now kind of driven by social media to uh, de-platform these people. And what's hard is some have said things and then like doubled down and tripled down and said, I'm not walking away from that. But some people have actually said things, immediately recognized um, how uh, untrue or unhelpful or hurtful those things were, and then uh, profusely apologize for those things only to still find themselves canceled or probably to say another word, condemned. And so cancel culture could probably be synonymous with condemnation culture, uh, but I think it has this ever-growing effect on all of us. It does certainly on me where I'm like, I'm thinking, and, and this is just kind of even part of my historic struggle anyway, and some of my, my sin bents, it's like, am I going to do something? Am I going to say something that gets me exiled, that gets me shamed, like, like, the, like the, worst, the worst possible nightmare? Like, am I going to do something or even have I done something that somebody is going to find out that's going to condemn me? <laughs> And, um, you know, I think it's possible in, and if you even kind of trace even, even the root of your fears, that some of our fears are, are even leading back to this idea, this fear of condemnation, that we could have actually done something or said something or will do something or will say something that will be found out and will leave us exiled and ostracized and put out forever. And what Paul is saying is that the implications of the gospel are so profound, so much so that it's actually impossible in the life of the Christian for us to ever be condemned by the only voice that really matters. Now we'll get into more of what that lasting declaration means because Paul's gonna talk about it in the next few verses. Verse two, uh, Paul's going to contrast really two principles. He calls them uh, two laws. So there's the life of, uh, there's the law of the spirit of life and then the law of sin and death. And uh, the law of sin and death uh, goes back to the idea. And again, this is all a summary. Paul's very clear and Paul's redundant at times, necessarily so to make his argument. Uh, You know, if you know anything about vision, um, vision is always good to be on repeat And this is what Paul's doing. He's kind of making similar arguments. But again, the law of sin and death uh, was explained uh, in previous chapters. But it's really this idea that we were in bondage to sin. And as as religious people, here's what we thought. This was baseline. Um, I can avoid all condemnation in my life by living a superior life. And so what Paul tactically does, he shows thoroughly in previous chapters the futility of such an attempt, of such a mindset that any attempt to justify ourselves um, by the law leads to the full penalty of the law, including death. And so the contrast here is is the law of the spirit of life, which actually liberates us entirely from the law of sin and death. And this is based on the principles of the gospel that are explained beginning in verse three. Uh, In verse three, Let me read it says, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. 
he condemned sin in the flesh. So what is it that the law cannot do? Again, this is uh, a bit of, uh, of, of stuff that we've already covered, but the law cannot save us. Why can the law not save us? Because of the weakness of our flesh. Uh, we cannot live up to the law because of our fallenness. And so therefore, the law itself, which is still inherently good, could not be an instrument of salvation. The law could only be an instrument of condemnation for us. And so God responds to that by doing something profound. And what he does is he sends Jesus to be exactly like us with one major exception. And we have to clarify this, um, that he sends Jesus in the likeness of sinful flesh, but that's not to say that Jesus comes with sinful flesh. So he comes like us, but he ultimately does not come as us because he himself is categorically different in the fact that he does not yield to sinfulness. Uh, and so he comes um, uh, in the likeness of sinful flesh, but then he comes with a mission in mind. And that mission is what? That mission is for sin. So Jesus knew exactly what his mission was when he came, and that was to do something about the problem of sin, bringing condemnation not upon himself, I'm sorry, not upon us, but upon himself. And why is that? Well, I think this is really key for us to dig into the scriptures and see this because he wanted to give us a gift. He comes as sinful flesh to do something about the problem of sin because he actually wants to give us a gift. And what is that gift he wants to give? That gift is life in the spirit. And so when you kind of dig into the passage here, um, it's really interesting because Paul is saying this. He's like he's saying that it's it's one thing to be forgiven and to move on. Okay, so like if God just said to us, uh, "Hey, Josh Duncan, uh, you are forgiven. I have absolved you of all of your sins. Move on." That would actually make us sinless, but it actually wouldn't make us righteous. It would make us morally neutral. In that sense, we would be like Adam and Eve before the fall. And so uh, it's profoundly important that we are forgiven of our sin, but there's actually more happening here. And what's happening here is the idea of double imputation. Okay, so that's a nerdy theological term, which means this, that not only are we forgiven for our sin, we are actually um, given the gift of Jesus's life, so 33 years of unwavering obedience to God, because, Paul says, the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. So what does that mean? That Jesus is not only uh, dying for our sin, he's dying to give us the gift of his perfect obedience. And so Jesus comes to condemn our condemnation, if you will, by dying in our place, absorbing judgment, but that's not the only thing going on. What Jesus wants to give us, and this is key, this is so easy to miss in this passage, is that he wants to give us the gift of the Holy Spirit um, because the righteousness of his life aligns directly with the Spirit and not the sinful nature that he has put to death. Jesus wants to give us the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is the gift of his life. And some of you guys are like, huh? For real? Like, what are, like, like legitimately, what are you talking about? And uh, yeah, so the Holy Spirit, man, he's, uh, he's sneaky sometimes. Um, he's, uh, he's, he's sneaky. Francis Chan was right to call 
him the forgotten God. Um, because all throughout Jesus's life, I mean, Jesus is front and center, but if you, you know, dive into the gospel narratives, what you'll see um, is that the Holy Spirit is there from the beginning. Um, the Holy Spirit enables the virgin birth. Uh, the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus at his baptism. Uh, the Holy Spirit leads Jesus through the testing and the temptation uh, in the wilderness. Uh, the Holy Spirit continually gives him strength to do the miraculous. The Holy Spirit seals his redemption. The Holy Spirit raises Jesus Christ from the dead. Yeah, that Holy Spirit. And so what Paul is saying is that Jesus comes to condemn our condemnation, not just to make us a morally neutral, sinless people, but to actually fulfill the righteousness of the law, which is Jesus's life uh, given to us and empowered by the Holy Spirit. So to say it more simply, the point of the cross is not just to put our sins to death, it's so that we can actually live righteously through the Holy Spirit so that the Holy Spirit can take off, if you will, in our lives. That's what's happening in the cross. And, um, and so what does this mean? Like when you look at these four verses, guys, I'm telling you, I'm, I feel so constrained because I would just, I'd love to just spend hours on this and I can't. Um, but like, what does this mean? It means this, that you are not only not condemned by God, you are liberated to walk with God. You are not only not condemned by God, you are liberated to walk with God. And it's this pivotal moment of explanation here in Romans 8. Again, this is like so consequential. But in some sense, you get hints, like there's nothing new. Like the idea that God would not condemn us. It, it, goes, it goes all the way back to the, it goes to the very beginning of the Bible. Like Genesis 3, Adam and, Adam and Eve make this profound mistake. And the author of Genesis makes it clear that the craftiness of the, of the serpent is directly attacking the nakedness or the blamelessness of the man and the woman. So much so that after the fall, they are sitting there naked and they are ashamed. And what is the first thing that God does in their nakedness and in their shame? He sacrifices an animal for them and he creates garments so as to cover them. And you read this thread all through the Bible, guys. I mean, you're talking Ezekiel 16, when Ezekiel has a vision of what Israel was at the beginning, really um, not from noble birth, if you will. Ezekiel 16 says that God pitied Israel when nobody else did. He saw her lying as a helpless baby uh, cast in a field. He saw her and he said, live. And he made her flourish like a plant. And then as she grew up, he spread the corner of his garment and cover her, covered her nakedness and made his vow and entered a covenant with her because he couldn't stand to sit there and see her wallowing in her shame and in her condemnation. And then you go even further, you see like Zechariah's vision of the high priest Joshua. Um, we don't know all the story, but we know Zechariah has this vision of Joshua, who is, the, who is the high priest. And there's an angel of the Lord there, and there is Satan there. And Satan is accusing, directly accusing Joshua. And Joshua's vestments are covered and darkened. And I mean, they're, they're nasty. And what we see in this story is that God intervenes. The angel says, rebukes the enemy. And what God does is he says, take away those vestments of the high priest and give him pure white linen. That, like the, I mean, John 8, 
John 8 may be a passage you're familiar with at the high point of Jesus's ministry where a woman who's caught in the act of adultery, she's caught in the act. Guys, this had just happened. This is just, and, and the leaders, religious leaders, throw her in front of Jesus. Talk, I mean, my, how, like her heart's racing. Like she, I mean, how, like how, I, I cannot think, I can't fathom a more shameful event than to be caught in an affair in the first century and for a bunch of men to take you and to throw you in front of Jesus with potentially hundreds of people watching. And then what does he do? He looks at her and he looks at them and he says to every man there, he says, whoever, whoever doesn't have any sin, you, you cast the first stone. And what does he do? He stands as an advocate and as a defender and a shepherd and a protector in front of those men until he graciously rebukes all of them. They all walk away and he stands and he lifts up that woman in the most shameful moment of her life. And he says, is there anybody else here to accuse you? And, and, and he says, well, I don't either. And he says, go and sin no more. Guys, the idea of a God who wants to do something about our condemnation is nothing new. But what Paul is saying here is this climactic moment of this is now true. Let me explain this to you theologically, that you are not condemned by God. But this doesn't mean that you're not condemned. Okay, that's a really important distinction. Uh, we still walk in a certain kind of condemnation. Uh, and what do I mean by that? Like, um, I walk in the condemnation of myself. I, I condemn myself. And you condemn yourself. Like, I, um, I mean, I, I've been meeting with a counselor since... Uh, uh, early last year and have just done some really good heart work. And one of the things that he drew out is just how shame has kind of been this thread that I have navigated uh, since I was a kid. And that there have been moments and episodes and seasons where I have walked in pronounced shame. And what has happened because of that shame is that I, Matt Younger, have, have condemned myself before and after my conversion, I have made judgment and accusation of myself. And so I still walk. I don't walk in an accusation from God or condemnation from God, but I condemn myself. And so, so do you sometimes. We walk in condemnation from the enemy. The enemy will condemn us all day long. The fact that Christ has triumphed on the cross does not negate the fact that he is an accuser that prowls like a lion looking for somebody to destroy. And so we'll condemn ourselves. The enemy will condemn us. Uh, and the world will condemn us. Like the world will condemn anybody who does not ultimately yield to self-rule. And the outcome of that is, is, I think, even growing condemnation. So it's not that we don't walk as condemned people by certain voices. The, 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 the more operative, operative point is that um, we're not condemned by the only voice that really matters, because of what Christ has done. Because of Jesus, grace has triumphed over sin. And the only voice that matters has said with finality that you are not now nor ever condemned by God. And the enemy hates this declaration. And you know that there's actually nothing more than he hates than this. And so who needs to hear this? I do, you do. There's no condemnation. You're walking in pronounced shame, fear. There's no condemnation. 
You're haunted by your failures. No condemnation. You are uh, wallowing in what you haven't become. You haven't lived up to the promise of your life. You live under the perpetual failure of what you've yet to do, what you've yet to become, who you failed along the way. There's no condemnation. You can't get over something that you did in the past. There's no condemnation. You're wrought with habitual sin that you cannot shake. There's no condemnation. You're saying, hey, Matt, that all might be true, but if you actually really know the things I've given myself, there's no condemnation. You're hearing this is not possible for you. There's no condemnation. Is there condemnation from other voices? Yes, there is. And there will be until he comes back and silences those voices, which he promises to do. But right now for us, there's absolutely no condemnation from God to us. The only voice that matters because of what Christ Jesus has done on the cross. And that is Paul's point here. And that is extraordinary news for us. That those of us who walk according to the spirit of God walk in no condemnation. So it's important for us to actually know what walking in the Spirit means. It's essential. And Paul's going to spend uh, verses 5 through 8 doing that for us. So uh, verse 5 says this, For those who live according to the flesh, set their mind on the things of the flesh. But for those who live according to the Spirit, they set their mind on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Uh, Okay, so we have this dichotomy here, flesh and spirit. Let's work through this fastly. Okay, when he talks about flesh, the Greek word sarks, what is he talking about? He's not talking about epidermis. Okay, that's not the idea. The idea, rather, thank you, John Stott, for helping me here is that what Paul means is the whole of our humanness viewed as corrupt and unredeemed. Uh, To say it another way, this is our fallen, egocentric human nature. This is the sin-dominated self. And the flesh is in contrast with verse 5, the spirit, the Greek word pneuma. Uh, And what Paul means by pneuma is the personal Holy Spirit who not only regenerates us, but actually indwells us now as believers. And that is huge. And Paul is actually focused on the mindset, if you will, of those who either walk according to the flesh or according to the spirit. How does this play out? Verse six, um, there's two categories of people. There are the unregenerate who are gonna walk in the flesh. And then there are the regenerate who are gonna walk in the spirit. With uh, the two categories of people, there are two mindsets, the mind of the flesh, the mind of the spirit. And then there are two patterns or conducts uh, or or outcomes, if you will. Uh, And that is to live according to the flesh, which would lead to death or to live according to the spirit, which is life and peace. Uh, And then I think a question, an important question, uh, what of the unredeemed verses seven and eight? uh, What we know is that the mindset of the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God. It cannot, it cannot please God. So what does this mean for us? It means a couple things. It means, first of all, that we want to avoid as often as we can, an unnecessary false dichotomy or a binary at Northway Church. What I mean to say that is as, 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 we, as we teach the scriptures, 
um, we understand that we are taking on complex, substantial things. Um, and so what we are going to do is we're going to read the scriptures and we're going to teach the scriptures convictionally as we believe the scriptures are read and as we believe the scriptures should be taught. But that also doesn't mean that we think that we have Christianity cornered here, that like the only expression of true Christianity is happening at Northway Church. We think that's actually foolish. I think there are plenty of places in Dallas and around the globe who would disagree with us even substantially on theological issues, but who still very much honor Jesus as Lord and who embody some evidence, a lot of evidence sometimes of life in the spirit. So what we are not trying to do is to ever walk in some kind of, you know, iron fisted, like, you know, here is the truth of God for all people at all time, always, unless we have to. And this is one of those places in the Bible where we have to, because there are times where the Bible makes the binary clear. And what Paul is saying here is really important for us, because what Paul is saying here is that there are those who will follow Jesus by the Spirit, and those who follow Jesus by the Spirit will live towards life and peace. And then those who, uh, those who will follow the flesh and not the Holy Spirit and the outcome of their life will be hostility to God leading to death. And there are two outcomes for men and women. There is an outcome of those who will yield their life to Jesus Christ. And there is an outcome for those who will not yield their life to Jesus Christ. And we believe that not because um, we, we want to make strong theological proclamations. We believe that in humility because we believe that's what the Bible teaches to create life-giving words for us, to honor our Creator and so in this, you have the idea, another theological idea of total depravity. What's happening in total depravity? It's that we are, apart from God, unable to pursue God without his way. There's nothing good enough, good in us enough that can find God. God has to reach out to us. But let me clarify this. Total depravity doesn't mean utter depravity. It doesn't mean um, that every person under the sun is completely depraved and cannot do good. Brady talked about this last week. Um, there is plenty of good in the world. There is plenty of good for those uh, in the life of those who, uh, who are not Christ followers. There is actually more good in some of them and their acts manifestly than there is good in me. And that's why it's wonderful news that I'm saved by grace through faith and you too and not by my works. But the point of this uh, is not that there isn't a, a good in the life of someone who doesn't follow Christ. The point is rather that anybody who doesn't follow Christ, the arc of their life is bending towards self-gratification and self-rule as opposed to worship and submission to God, their creator, uh, who created them for his glory. Uh, and so Paul's going to go now, uh, really, as we kind of end the passage, he's going to say, if you really want any shot of true life and peace, it's life with the Spirit. But now he's going to encourage us. And I think this is important for us. Verses 9 through 11. But you, however, are not in the flesh, but you are in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if the spirit of Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells 
in you. So verse nine is gonna speak to assurance of salvation. Paul's gonna say, you are not this. You are not flesh. You are this. You are spirit. You walk according to the spirit. And, uh, you know, one of my um, many privileges as a pastor uh, is to have conversations with those who doubt, um, those who are spiritual doubters. And one thing that I always try to say to a spiritual doubter is like, like 90, 95% of the encouragement to me is you reaching out or you walking forward and you saying something like we see in Mark 9, which is like, hey, I believe, but, but help my unbelief, right? Because um, the people, like with respect, like I, I think maybe to say it another way, I don't worry about spiritual doubt. I worry about spiritual apathy. Like the people, because you know, like the, the, the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is apathy. The person I am most concerned about is the person who never gives a thought to these questions. And yet some of the richest friendships I have, some of the most meaningful com, uh, conversations, some of the most, I think, profound Christian disciples that I know are people who actively doubt and who wrestle through their doubt and who should receive in this moment this encouragement from Paul in the scriptures that you are in the Holy Spirit. And that has been my, not, not always, not exclusively, but that has been my general experience for those who wrestle whether or not God loves them is, is, is just, it is so easy to affirm in the wrestle that, yeah, of course he loves you. Of course he loves you. And, uh, you know, I hope that that's encouragement to you today if you find yourself in a season of life that because of Jesus Christ, because of your faith in him, you are in the spirit. And then verses 10 and 11, one thing here quickly, it's, it's kind of be, one uh, commentary guy I read um, talked about um, practical Trinitarianism here because without, um, um, without um, blurring the lines in the Godhead, so you still have Father, Son, Holy Spirit, what you see Paul do here um, is, is, is use like interchangeable Trinitarian language. Um, so like in verse nine, you see the spirit of God dwells. In verse nine, you see the spirit of Christ. In verse 10, you see Christ in you. In verse 10, you have life in the spirit. And then Douglas Moo says this, it's not that Christ and the spirit are equated or interchangeable, but it is that Christ and the spirit are so closely related and communicating to believers the benefits of salvation that Paul can move from one to the other almost unconsciously, which is great encouragement to us in our Trinitarian understanding of God. Uh, to see Paul, who is such a logical mind, begin to say, this is the Spirit, this is Christ. Of course, they are distinct, but this is how they work together in you. But more than that, verse 10, what does having the Spirit of God mean? It means this, that if Christ is in you, you have died. I cannot say that I will continue to say that to you as long as I'm here, as long as I have, like, as, if Christ is in you, you have died. When I became a Christian in eighth grade, Matt Younger died. But more so for you this morning or whenever you're watching this, if Christ is in you, the same God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal body as well. What in the world does that mean? Okay, <laughs> like, okay, you have died. Sin, chapter six, has lost its power to master you. 
okay? What's done is done. It's past tense. I know you keep bringing it up. I know the enemy keeps bringing it up. But what's done is done. It is in the past. It is behind you. It is forgiven by God. And for me, that is profoundly significant because I told you, like, I have so many regrets. And I, I think more of my regrets in life, candidly, are regrets that I have post uh, my conversion to Christ than not before my, but I'm, I'm telling you guys, I'm, I'm, I'm tenderhearted. I'm a feeler. Uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm easily manipulated. I'm, don't, don't mess with me. But um, I, uh, you know, I, I just, um, yeah, I can, I can, um, I can live in a lot of shame. I can live in um, present shame. I can live in. Um, a lot of fear of condemnation. I can live in uh, a mindset of worst case scenario. Like, are these things going to happen? Am I going to experience condemnation? Um, and I don't think you and I are that different. I think that that's some of your wrestles too. And um, so what I want to do is I want to dignify that there are things that we have wrestled with and we still wrestle with that will pull us down. But I think what's more important to this conversation as believers in Christ is to not spend our time overwhelmingly on what is pulling us down, but to actually look at who is pulling us up. And that's Paul's point in verse 11. It's that sin and death and condemnation are powerful things but you have to answer the question first, who is it that's pulling you up and who's pulling you up? Verse 11 is the Holy Spirit who is in you. And that is the same Holy Spirit. Think about this, who not only raised Jesus Christ in the most powerful event in human history, but who has promised to continually raise you and me in the darkest nights of our soul. So the question is not who is pulling me down. The question is who is lifting me up And the Holy Spirit of God by his grace has promised us as a seal of his covenant love to lift us up into eternity until Christ comes back for us again. So the question is not who's pulling us down. The question is who is lifting us up. And, you know, I have these conversations with my, my son, William, all the time um, because he's, he's so into like big, powerful, superlative things. So it's things like, hey, dad, how's an atomic bomb different than a nuclear bomb? And I just make something up. I don't know the answer there. Sorry, William. Um, or, you know, hey, daddy, if you and Conor McGregor got in a fight, who would win? And, you know, obviously it's me. You know, I outweigh him and I'm country strong, but he doesn't know the difference. Uh, what if Godzilla, you know, fought King Kong? Well, I'm like, I think there's a movie about that. What if this Marvel character fought this Marvel character? And then um, like C.S. Lewis is so apt to do, um, for me personally, he's, he's such a, an influence. Um, in the Chronicles of Narnia, um, there's this scene, and it's in The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, and it's uh, when Aslan, who is the Christ figure, um, makes a deal with the White Witch, who is the, the Satan figure, if you will, about what to do with Edmund's sin, Edmund's transgression. And he makes a deal, and the White Witch thinks that she's actually won the deal because what Aslan has done for Edmund is he has chosen to forfeit his life. 
and to die in Edmund's place. And, uh, and so there is this brutal massacre, this slaughter of Aslan where he's led up to the stone table and where the darkest, nastiest, most vile creatures in all of Narnia come to see who they believe um, is the only thing getting, into the, getting in their way of their rule. And so Aslan dies, and it's the darkest night in Narnia, and then Aslan resurrects, and nobody understands it, that Aslan can come back to life and what it means. And so Aslan, sitting with the children, actually explain what him, explains what him coming back to life means. And he says this, he says, it means, says Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she knew, if, I'm sorry, but if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who has committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. So what does this mean for us? It means that death for the believer in Christ has actually started working backwards. It means that when you triumphed and became a Christian, that was a profoundly momentous moment in your life, but that the Holy Spirit was not just after your conversion to Christianity. He's actually uh, deeply involved with the triumph of your sanctification too. He's deeply involved with you understanding what life in the Spirit means. He's deeply involved with you um, and me getting deep into our souls, what it means to actually live out the righteousness of Christ amidst the enemy's accusations, amidst his condemnation, because the power of the enemy feels real still. And you and I both acknowledge that. His condemnation feels real, right? But for those of us who are keeping up with the Spirit, walking according to the Spirit, for the believer in Christ, the enemy is actually shooting hollow bullets. His bark is bigger than his bike. He cannot, he, he, is, he is writing checks that his mouth simply cannot cash. Like what this means for us is that the Holy Spirit of God has far more interest in just saving you from death to life. He has such profound interest in reminding you not once, but perpetually for the rest of our lives that we are not condemned by God. But moreover, that he wants to empower us with the same kind of energy, the very life of Christ. Because as we just sang, there's actually still more to come. There are too many, too many good things ahead for us, brothers and sisters, because of the active work of the Holy Spirit for us to wallow in condemnation and not hear the voice of the only judgment that truly matters, the voice of God who says, you are not now, not ever condemned. And what the Holy Spirit is actually calling us to is for the people around us to experience the, substi the substantive fruit of what freedom and resurrection actually looks like in our lives. And so there still is 
far, far, far more to come because of the Holy Spirit who wants to do the good work of manifesting the life of Jesus Christ in us. And that, my friends, is worth celebrating. So let me pray for us. Um, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for, um, Lord, just this pronouncement over us that we are not condemned um, by you. And that while we may feel condemnation from ourselves, we may feel it from the world, we certainly feel it from the enemy that you have triumphed because of Jesus Christ. You have actually drowned out and have, have rendered that condemnation weak, useless, ineffective. And so, Lord, while it might be effective to steer us off course, I pray that in these minutes that we have, even now, that what we would hear from you is that you want to lead us to life and peace and not to death. You, Lord, that, that, we, that we are not who we used to be. That we are not who we used to be. That we are not unlovable. That we are held and loved and cherished and kept by you. That there is no condemnation. There is no condemnation. And so, Lord, I pray that you, only you, by your Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, make this true for us. Lord, we know it's true, but we doubt. And we should, Lord, make this true for us. Help us to believe. Encourage our hearts, Father. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.